Welcome to Female Inner Power, the podcast for women who don't want to choose between work success and life happiness. I'm your host, Nomi Melkyonatan, leadership coach and courage catalyst. Each week, I will share a refreshingly honest conversation about how to trust your intuition, lead from female power in male-dominated spaces, and inspire you to be a more confident force for good in the world. Are you ready? Welcome, welcome to another episode of Female Inner Power with Delphine Musso. Delphine now has a portfolio career and serves on more than six different boards. She originally grew up in Brittany, France, and she got her start in e-commerce in 99 when she took a massive pay card to join this small garden plant online startup. I love how Delphine, throughout this conversation, shares her relationship to risk, to chance, to opportunity. She's also a beautiful example of how careers are not linear and this fear that so many of us women have that if we take a pause or we slow down or we go in another direction for a moment, will we ever get to fulfill our ambitions? And I love how Delphine shares her faith and how things came together for her in all kinds of different ways and what she was willing to risk along the way. This conversation also is very important in that it challenged me and maybe it will challenge you in how much support are you really lining up for yourself. Delphine not only has an incredibly successful career, she also raised four children and she talks about how she balanced the motherhood and the career and what support she lined up for herself. And I noticed that there were surprises for me and what judgment and prejudice I had around, wait, I still hold things about what a mother should and shouldn't do. And it's made me reflect a lot on what support I'm lining up for myself and I'm allowing myself and my family to have. So really listen all the way to the end. She also shares the three big fat lies around women and their careers. If you enjoy this podcast, I would love you to follow, rate and review the show. It really helps other women to find it. And let's take a breath. And dive in. Delphine, welcome to the Female Inner Power podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy you are here and our pre-chat was so exciting. So I can't wait to get started and record. Tell us, um, well, you told me what your week's already been like and it's only Tuesday morning. So tell us where you are and what's already been happening in your week. So I'm here in a very freezing Berlin. And I have a very busy week. Um, as I, I told you, I've got a portfolio carrier. And the thing is that when you've got different assignments, sometimes um, it's very empty because nothing is happening on all fronts. And this week, actually, it's happening on all fronts at the same time. So I had three um, meetings yesterday for three different board assignments that I have. And I have three more, uh, two in London, one in Paris uh, at the end of this week. So quite a heavy week. So three board meetings yesterday and another three board meetings for the rest of the week. That is full on, full on exciting. And and I'm hoping we'll have time later on to talk about women and getting on boards. But I want to sort of go back in time for um, everyone listening to get a sense of your career and life and and how you did it all. Did you grow up as a little girl thinking, hey, I want to have a big career and be you know, solid in business and I want to have four children and this is how I want my life to be. Is is this the vision you had as a little girl? I don't think I had that vision, you know, um, you know, like all little girls, you know, anything that I was doing as a passion, I wanted to make a job. So I was a ballerina. So I thought, oh, that would be nice to be at the Opera de Paris uh, and those kind of things. Definitely, I had an idea I wanted to be financially independent and have a job because in my family, uh, both my grandmothers uh, had uh, a, a edu- high education and were working at least part of their life. And actually, on my mother's side, my, my mother reminded me recently that it was more of a matriarcha, you know, like um, my great grandmother and my grandmother uh, were very dominant in decisions in the family. So 
I felt like I wanted to have my autonomy in the way I would lead my life. That was very clear. And also on my mother's side, we have a very big family. Uh, my mother has got four siblings and we love spending time all together. And I felt like family was something really important for me. Um, whether it's direct family or extended family, like people you make family, I like having this big gathering and having people around me as advisor, um, yeah, people to exchange with. I feel very energized with other people. I'm I'm a true extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> so true extrovert, you had strong female role models, it sounds like, growing up. And, and tell us, so you grew up in France. Yes, I grew up in Brittany. So actually, my, my father had taken a job as a surgeon in uh, in the west part of France, and it was a small city. And as age 16, I already wanted to go to Paris and study in Paris because I felt like I was not get a, getting enough exposure, especially on cultural aspect and exchange. And actually, um, an aunt of me who was living in Paris told me, don't do that. You know, if you go to Paris, you'll be exposed to a very, uh, um, yeah, it, it's very challenging the way it's done in Paris. You know, we've got a very elitist culture. And she said, if you go to Paris, you will be in um, in a high school, which will be very competitive. It's going to be hard for you um, to cut through the clutter. So she said, stay nicely in Bretagne, do whatever you need, learn. And I was super frustrated, to be honest. What was interesting is that it indeed it was very easy for me to be you know, like completely at the top of my of my peer group um, with limited effort. So I had really, really good marks. And at the same time, I had a lot of time left. So I did a lot of sports, but I saw I did a lot of volunteering um, in my city, which was um, 150,000 inhabitants. There was no university. So there were no young people who were involved in um, nonprofit organization. So I was leading the Red Cross youth movement in my city. I was doing a lot of work um, towards, you know, old pensioners. I was going involved with my faith and, and different um, Catholic groups. So I could actually have exposure with leadership and uh, learn for myself. I was going every week to the movies. You know, I, I was doing a lot of stuff. So in the end, it, it was a, a nice uh, experience to, to be raised in a small city. Mm, sounds like you have a naturally adventurous, curious spirit. Yes. And it's funny thing is that when I arrived in Paris to study, I discovered that most Parisians didn't know much, you know, like they had not been to stand up comedy. They had not been exploring like all the different arrondissements. And I was so willing to explore that, you know, I would take my little um, book because at that time we didn't have smartphones. So I had my little book with all the different addresses in Paris and I would big take an arrondissement and go at the weekend, explore and discover new parts of the city. So, yeah, I love discovering. I think when you discover places, you discover the story and the people behind it. And this is something that I've done in Amsterdam. Maybe we'll talk about it. You know, I've wrote a book about the secret places in Amsterdam, which is meant for people who are living in the city. And it's been fascinating because you discover, you know, for instance, um, a solar quadrant uh, that is in a garden. And then you discover this garden is much, much bigger. And why is that? Because, you know, the person who bought this house uh, made a fortune by going in, the, um, you know, exploring the, the world with specific boats that they had in the 16th century and all those kind of things. So, you know, like uh, one thing leads always to another and it's really expands your way of um, thinking and, and looking at um, at life. So I really love exploring uh, cities and culture. And it's, it's for me, um, uh, yeah, it's always a big treat to discover new things. Well, I, so, so you went to Paris and you started studying and you realized actually the Parisians weren't as worldly as you thought they were. What happened? What happened next? Yeah. So actually when I, when I studied, um, first all my family is from medical, you know, either doctors, uh, or dentists or pharmacists and, um, and they all told me don't go to the medical field. So actually I was the only one in my family, uh, studying business. So everything was completely new. And it was quite frightening because, of course, you know, you don't necessarily have the network to to show you what to do. So um, when I, I decided to look for a job, um, actually, most of my friends were going abroad. So part of my curiosity was I also want to go abroad. And they were going abroad because at that time we had military service in France. And a lot of people didn't want to go. A lot of men didn't want to go to the army. So they were going doing this exchange with companies for a year and a half. And a lot of my friends were engaged, so they were following their boyfriend. At that time, my boyfriend did want to do the military service, so he went to the Légion. And um, so I thought, oh, how do I go abroad? So I looked for uh, my first job being abroad. And I had found um, a job in a very small company in Vietnam. 
And I thought, ah, maybe I need to back, have a backup plan because if this little import-export company in Vietnam is not what I love, what am I going to do next? So at that time, the two really fancy stuff to do were either going to do finance in, in London or to do strategy in one of the major firms in Paris. So I thought, okay, do I go to McKinsey or BCG? I thought McKinsey had a bad reputation in Paris. Don't know why, but they were had the reputation of being arrogant. I don't like arrogant people. So I said, okay, let's let's send an application to BCG. I did only one. I went there. I did four hours of interviews and then went home, relaxed. You know, I had no pressure. It was my plan B. And then comes um, um, a, a driver with uh, my contract and bottle of champagne ring at my door at 8 p.m. And I was just like, oh, my God, what am I doing? So I called the partner and said, yeah, I'd love to join, but you know, that's not my plan A. And he said, yeah, it's an open offer. You come whenever you want. So in three months, in six months, just ring me when you want to come. So I did actually um, a market study for um, a subsidiary of Alcatel in Asia for, for several weeks. I went to Bangkok, Hong Kong, Singapore, and then I came back to Paris and joined BCG. So it was, I would say, by chance that I started my career in consulting. I stayed five years and it's because I really enjoy strategy. So I think this is where I started discovering my skill set. And I think I'm, I'm, um, I love helicopter view. I love understanding systems. I love understanding how things are working together. And I think this is why um, I really enjoy strategy. Beautiful. Wow. How fascinating. So actually very early on, you got straight into strategy and you did some exciting travel, it sounds like. Yes, yes, it was it was really exciting. At BCG, I traveled a bit also. Uh, I was also exposed to a lot of international companies. But my main frustration was that, you know, when you do, and especially at that time, we were doing high level strategy with limited uh, implementation. I yeah. felt very frustrated. Like um, even one of my work was for Galerie Lafayette. And at that time, it was owned by one part of the family. It's a, it's a, a big family um, owned, owned company. And the poor Mr. Meyer died from a heart attack. Very sad. And um, the the part of this business was taken over by the other part of the family and all our work went to the bin. And I thought, I can't do this anymore. I cannot work for something that no one is going to use. And I looked for an operation job. Um, I, I had a lot of interviews. A lot of people offered me jobs as, um, you know, strategy in a company, which I thought is a bit the same. Um, but, you know, I was young, female and well-paid and nobody wanted to give me a business unit. Wow. So I ended up, wondering what am I going to do next? And this is where the bubble uh, in, uh, the internet started booming in France and yeah. a lot of businesses were started. So I thought, oh, if I try internet and I fail, you know, worst case, I'll go back to a director of strategy kind of role. So I joined a, a friend from BCG um, who had just started co-founding a startup selling plants for the garden online and uh, basically kind of had a role of, as a kind of co-founder back in the days in 1999. And this is where my journey on e-commerce started. Got it. So you joined the startup and how did it go? Well, the first thing is that my salary was less than the tax I had to pay for the year before. So first, <laughs> it um, kind of changed my lifestyle. <laughs> I worked way more because, you know, it was so exciting. Uh, we had this, this um, thing that when we were uploading new plans for the catalog, we were putting a fake stock at 1999, $999, um, just, you know, to, to make sure that it would not run run low. And um, and then one, one evening, I'm uploading new roses, and then I see 998. I'm just like, am I stupid? Didn't put 90. And actually, it had been sold in the one minute that I uploaded oh, wow. the rose. And it was so exciting, you know, like to wow. you put something. Because, you know, if, if you're a gardener, you know that you can find basic stuff in your garden center. But if you want something a bit fancy, and rose trees can be very, very fancy, we had a catalog of more than 300 roses. So you have people who are passionate and suddenly you give them opportunity to buy. I mean, there were a few catalogs going on, but, you know, internet was opening for collectors completely a new way of, of um, uh, relating to, to their area of passion. And there is a lot of people who are passionate about gardening. So it was really the beginning and it was this excitement of uh, connecting with people, connecting to their passion. So um, I really enjoyed it very much. That sounds like such an adventure. And in 99, when the internet just opening up and e-commerce and, and how long did you stay there? Are you, are you still a, a co-founder? Does it still exist? Uh, so how it worked is basically um, I, I, I had already two kids while I was working at Plans et Jardins. So, uh, so I was basically working almost three years um, uh, in the company full time with uh, two times short breaks because French people tend to have short maternity leaves. And then um, we couldn't really 
live in Paris with young kids. So we had decided with my husband at that time that we wanted to go abroad. And the first one who would find a job would, would you know, take the family out. And he found a job first. So we decided to move to Amsterdam. And I continued working at a distance for Plans des Jardins. So roughly 20 hours a week as a freelancer. So in all in all, I worked a bit more than six years. I had shares of the company and we sold it to a garden retail chain um, a few years later. So I basically completely disengaged. It didn't make me rich, but um, it was still a fairly decently paid role. And it's really funny because it still exists today. And I actually met this summer the woman who's in charge of this business unit within the garden retail chain. So it's nice that what you have, you know, implemented and thoughts and um, yeah, structured still exist, you know, um, yeah, almost 20 years later, or more than 20 years later. Yeah, 20. That's 20. very impressive, because also many companies that started in the internet business that time just didn't make it. Wow, amazing. And, and actually, I know, I've, I've heard you talk about risk before. And, you know, I didn't realize that actually, at the time when you took this job, when you're working there, you already had two kids. Yeah. Um, a lot of women would have gone stay safe, or don't take that kind of job or whatever. What what made you sort of go, well, of course, I'm going to take this opportunity? So it's recent, It's interesting because recently I've been reflecting on my relationship to money. Mm-hmm. Um, I discovered that a lot of people around me, um, you know, when something is your talent, you don't think that it's specific. You don't think that it's unique. You think that everybody's got it. And I realized talking to people that a lot of people don't have savings. Don't People do not really manage their money. And I realized that money literacy is actually financial literacy is very low. Yeah. So I started exploring and, and I've done actually two workshops this summer with a group of friends to, to see how I could use my skill set and share it. And I think I've got this kind of weird combination of being uh, this kind of um, uh, accumulator. We've, we've discussed about this uh, concept of this Australian trainer. Uh, maybe you share the link later um, around, you know, loving to have a safe aspect with money and being very um, detailed on how you spend and invest. And at the same time, I'm a bit of a risk taker, a risk, a bit of a maverick. And I love to risk big to get big. Um, I think what was um, good in my marriage is that we had clearly decided that one would be the safe and one would be the risky at different times. So we had enough money uh, with our savings and um, now ex-husband job. So I was the one trying to bet for the big. And uh, I think that made it um, very safe. I felt like um, I could take the risk. And um, if it would work great, if it would not work, it would not still put us too much at risk. I love that. And that, I mean, I think that's partnership at its best when you kind of can take turns to be safe or risky. I, I love that. Often, I think in many partnership, the you know the safe is constantly on one or both try to be safe. Or I think it's beautiful that you sort of consciously decided to swap and, and take turns. Yeah. Nice. So then you got to Amsterdam. And is that when you wrote the book? Yes, yeah, it's where I wrote the book. Actually, I got when I moved to Amsterdam, I felt like everything was open. And um, I did um, a coaching to really look at my skill set and said, you know, what would be the, the right thing for me to do? You know, everything was possible. I had done strategy and startup and I didn't know what to do. And I was really, really excited. And it was a coaching really on personal and professional. And I think in general, you should not separate the two aspects of your life. You're one person. So everything is interlinked. And the woman that I talked with, she said, she gave me a lot of good advice, but the main one was, You've been working really, really hard for the last 10 years or eight years. You have two young kids. You're going to change country. And at that time, we didn't have internet, you know, as strong as we have today. You know, without Google Transit and Google Maps, I can tell you expatriation is way more difficult. Um, So she said, it's time for you to settle your home. And I didn't like that. She said, (laughs) your role, uh, your task is going to be to resist sending your resume. I didn't like that. No. But she said, everything you do, do it professionally. Take whatever you do, which is part of your usual time, um, either things you enjoy or things that you have to do and make it professional so you can talk about it later. And I I think it was a very, very good advice. It's not only that you can talk about it, but you can also have this sense of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. So I love discovering places as, as we've talked about, you know, like I love culture. I love discovering. So I thought, okay. 
let's make it something tangible, something I can show. And it's very nice today, you know, when I, every time I'm doing interviews or, or for jobs or anything, I say to people, yeah, I've wrote a book, which has been sold um, 14,000 copies in 25 languages. And I've got my name on Amazon. It's, it's, it's a nice accomplishment. So instead of just going around and exploring for myself, I made it more professional. And I did a lot of things like this. You know, I did um, learn how to program HTML and then I did websites for several people around me. I did some business coaching because I wanted to have some friends. So let's make it a bit more professional. So I think it was good to anchor um, my my passion into, into things that can be seen and, and also build my self-confidence that I'm not just, you know, securing the family. I'm also continuing developing myself. So during how many years was that where your first where your first priority was sort of settling the family? But it sounds like you did a lot of different things during that period. Three and a half years, three and a half years, three and a half years. It okay. could have been shorter, but I wanted to have a third kid at that time, and I felt um, I felt untrue if I would have taken a job while trying to get pregnant. Yeah. Actually, in retrospect, that was very silly. I think um, if uh, you consider having a child don't think too long, especially because um, <laughs> the time where you're, you're actually um, able to have kids is very short. Uh, today, women tend to do longer studies. So they consider, I mean, around me uh, might not be the, the norm, but around me, I see women considering having children around 28, 30. They think that earlier is too young, um, whatever judgment is, you know, and uh, you start having a lower fertility, um, depending on women between 35 and 40. So it's very, very short period of time that you can easily have kids. So I think if you have a desire for children, which is not for everyone, and it's totally okay, then if you have that desire, just go for it and don't think twice, because it might be, it might go quickly, it might take a long time. If you orchestrate all your life around this desire for, for maternity, it's going to make things really go upside down. So I think I could have looked for a job much earlier. It happened that I started looking for a job. I didn't look for a job. I I was just on the market, I guess. And I got a phone call from a headhunter that I had met during my time when I um, when I left uh, BCG. And she actually said, I've got a job that could be interesting for you. It was a job at Tommy Hilfiger leading e-commerce for Europe. So really exciting. Five minutes biking from my home. You know, I, I really felt the stars are aligning. This job is for me. But I was pregnant nine months. And she said, you know, I'd love to meet you. And I said, you know, I might give birth anytime. <laughs> she said, oh, it's okay. And then we planned to to meet on, on a Wednesday or something. And um, actually during the weekend, I gave birth. So Monday morning, wow. I texted her and say, sorry, we won't be able to meet on Wednesday because I just gave birth. And then she sent me a message saying, you know, I've been there I'd just like to see you just another time before I introduce you to the client. So can I just drop by your house? It's going to be very short. <laughs> so this is where I think, you know, when you really want something, and I felt the stars align, I should really yeah. consider the opportunity. I said, okay, I'm going to do it. It yeah. seems really, I mean, for women who had young kids, you know, like three days after, after birth is really not the time we want to have an interview. And especially yeah. the 10 minutes turn into an hour and a half. But I did it and I'm really glad I did it because there are some moments where you really need to jump on board and, you know, take the opportunity and it's going to be a stretch, but it's, you have to do it. And I'm so glad I did it because this job was for me really applying all what I've been learning in the startup, in a corporate environment, you know, experimenting with way more budget, with things which were more in place in terms of branding. It's been really a blast and um, yeah, I, I could have missed it very easily. Wow. So you got the job. So I got the job. Actually, it's funny. Um, first, I didn't get the job. I did the interview and, you know, I felt from the headhunter, I was the warm candidate, but they were not really sure. And then I, I, I discovered talking to my boss, who was uh, actually fabulous, but German women and having this idea that uh, women with a lot of kids, I had already three at that time, would not be devoted to their role, oh. that she didn't want to take me because of that. Or at least she had a prejudice, you know, let's not assume because I didn't ask her directly. And then, you know, they didn't find anyone else. So, or anyone uh, having the right skill set. 
So they called me a few months later and actually I could start exactly when my daughter was four months, which was actually perfect for me. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, she told me afterwards when, when my kids were sick and I was always taking, you know, babysitter or other people to help me that she was expecting I would be home at least one day a week to take care of my kids. And I said, you know, as French women, you know, when we have kids, we just get organized for the work to, to run, you know? It shouldn't be something that is blocking you from being professional and getting things accomplished. You know, whether you work at night or you work at the weekend, whenever you need to compensate because you need to be free during, uh, have this flexibility during the week, you know, it's not that the job is not, not, not going to get done. So I think it's important also, you know, as a woman to to show that you can run the show. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So that's amazing. So actually you didn't get the job, which was perfect because then you had four months totally off and then you did get the, the yeah. job. And yeah. it sounds like from, so being from Denmark, um, even though I've lived outside of Denmark for more than 20 years in Denmark, most women will take, you know, close to a year, if not a full year, but it sounds like in France, it was very usual to have four months. Is that yeah, um, it's, it's four months total. So before and after I had a bit okay. more because it was almost five months. Yeah. Um, I think what is interesting in this is that there is no right or wrong. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a norm. And I think it's very important as a woman to be able and as a mother to challenge the norm and challenge it before and after, meaning you might think you're going to take three months off and then in the end you want to take a year off. And that's fine. You might think you want to take a year off and actually you're bored to death home, talking only about nappies at the park, and you just want to go back to work. And that's also okay. So I think we should not have any shame. And if there is one big lesson is that you have to be yourself, act upon yourself and what is your need and know your need and try to, you know, shut your ears and not listen to what people think. For me, it was quite easy because I played the card of the French women. I was in Germany you know, already having four kids in Germany, people thought I was breeding children to sell them, you know, like somehow like why four children? <laughs> so I was out of the norm anyway. So I could say, you know, you cannot understand this is just the French way. And that was easy because I was so special that people would not even try to understand. If you're in your own country and you're doing things slightly different from others, it might be more pressurizing on you from a social norm point of view. You know, when I was, um, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but when I was working at Salando, my kids were going to, to school with a taxi driver. And at the beginning, you know, they were three to 13. And I would come and say hi to the taxi driver. And of course, the guy would say, I don't take five people. I said, no, no, it's only the four kids. And he would look at me like, oh, taking four kids. <laughs> and my oldest son was bringing his small um, brother to, to the kita. Wow. Those three days, I tell you, I felt really bad. I felt awful to put them in a taxi. Yeah. After a year, I didn't care at all. You know, I first, I don't like driving. And even now that I don't have time, I don't bring my kids to school. Second, it, it really gave me an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening to work. So it wow. gave me actually an hour in the evening, an hour in the morning to be with my kids. So do the task you love, delegate the task you don't like. And whatever people think you are supposed to do, you know. It's not your problem. Your problem yeah. is to sure you know your needs. So you basically showed your 13-year-old son how he could take his brother three to the to the nursery, to the kindergarten, and showed him that he could drop him off and that taxi driver took them there. And you won't believe it, but the director of the Kita told me, your son is my best parent. Wow. <laughs> if, the, if the sign up sheet is not there, he will he will chase me so he can sign up the sign up sheet. You oh, know? Wow. He did it with a lot of diligence. And I think for him, it was a way to grow and, and be responsible. Yeah. I mean, of course, you shouldn't charge your older kids with too much responsibility. Yeah. But, you know, putting slippers on and signing a sheet, I think is still reasonable. Um, so, so I think for him, it was it was also a way to to feel responsible. So it, it was, I think, a win-win. I mean, there's a huge difference just having two kids. I can see there's a huge difference for who they are and what they can do. And, and I guess this is what you said, like, don't listen to others about your career and your motherhood and how you want to do things. And the same with your kids, like what can a 13 year old do? There's a big difference. It depends on what opportunities you give them, but also who they are. There's such a big difference. So but that's so great. Okay. So I just want to go back and make sure we get the, the story. So you at Hilfiger, you just had your third child yeah. and you 
it sounds like you had the best time working there. But at some point, it's left... always, you know, some challenges, you know, it's yeah. interesting because maybe we can just go quickly into this because we're talking about female and empowerment. And actually, it was the first ever time that I was working with women. I've been working in male-dominated environment, consulting. There was um, uh, assistant secretaries were women, but all the consultants were men. Actually, I was the second woman in the Paris office being recruited. And after they started diversifying and have more women recruited, but uh, technically I had an interview with one woman who had a kid. So I thought, oh, they're trying to show me that it's possible. Actually, she was the only woman in the Paris office. So um, very male dominated. And then of course the gardening business is heavily male dominated. So I had never worked with women and I arrived in fashion, which is heavily female, especially in the middle management and lower management, of course, in the high management as you know, we're in the early 2000s. So uh, the early, I would say actually, Tommy Hilfiger was fairly diverse because we had three women at the top. So it was maybe 35% women uh, in the executive team. So it was not so bad, but it was the first time I was working with actually an entirely feminine team. And it was for me very different in terms of management, you know, way more emotions going on, you know, like, uh, so it was tough. So it was tough from that point of view. I really learned um, a, a very different way of leading people. And also I, I would say I had more of a more balanced level of um, uh, abilities, you know, in my past jobs, you know, in consulting, there is um, um, a very elitist approach. So it's very uh, up or out. And you have people who are really self-motivated, high performers. And somehow in the startup environment, it's the same. You cannot afford to have slow goers because they cannot um, um, keep with the rhythm. So I actually left people, uh, left the startup as we were growing because it was too fast for them. So I was also working with highly motivated, self-motivated and highly performing people. And then suddenly I'm with a very different set, very, very feminine, very emotional. And I would say good people, you know, uh, but, you know, not self-starter and not overly performance, you know, normal performance. And it was very challenging. So I wouldn't say it was it was an, an easy uh, role, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed the the learning curve there very much. It's so interesting that bit that you actually were schooled more in the um, masculine way and the very fast pace and then coming into an environment that was more feminine and more space for emotions. Actually, you're like, wait, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> Yeah, it was hard for me. It should have been easy, but it was hard. Yeah. And then um, we're back in 2011. Uh, my ex-husband was working for Adidas. And I think for me, it was clear that in his career to, to be able to continue developing himself, he had to go to the headquarters. So I actually pushed that we would move to um, Erlangen, which is an, next to Nuremberg in the middle of Germany. Um, Adidas has got the headquarters in a, in a village um, next to that city. So we moved there and I knew it would be very challenging for me because it's a new country first, but mostly because my, my ex-husband was taking a top management role. And I think this is where um, we have to, to be clear that in a partnership, you know, whether it's um, it's uh, heterosexual or homosexual partnership with the same, um, it's difficult to have two top carriers. I think two middle, middle uh, management carriers is kind of okay. When you've got top management, um, you have requirements on availability of your time, uh, which is uh, more strict. You know, if there is budget time, there is budget time. If you need to be on a show for, um, I don't know, uh, uh, corporate uh, finance or talking to investors, or there are times which are really mandatory. And also you earn so much money or, or so much more money that it's difficult to, you know, um, to not make those choices that the other the the other uh, partner in the couple uh, slow down to adjust. So I knew that somehow it would be difficult for me to maintain a middle manager role while he was having a top manager. So I had kind of given up that at least for a certain period of time. What I didn't know is was how difficult it would be to get help, you know, because uh, in uh, North Bavaria, it's really this mentality that women stay at home. So there is not really a setup that you can have um, a kita space that you can have um, cleaning, um, babysitting support. So it was very, very, very difficult. 
So I still managed to find some work uh, through a headhunter. I um, worked for a private equity and did several um, work for um, their assets uh, doing their digital strategy. So it was really a blessing. I could work as a freelancer, you know, 20 to 30 hours a week. But it was really, really challenging to, to um, you know, really take care of my family without the help that I was used to have. Yes. And it is necessary because, as I was saying, there is a lot of tasks that I don't like doing as uh, as uh, as a mother. And I love delegating those tasks to focus on the one I love. Yes. How many kids did you have? How And how old were the kids at this point in this village in Germany? Oh, I moved my uh, fourth one when nine, nine months old. Wow. Okay. So you had a nine months old and there was no childcare options. So actually, I managed to find with my very, very basic German, I managed to find um, a Tagesmutter. So which is interesting in German, it means a, a mother of the day. <laughs> Yes, That's uh, yeah. a lot of culture is said here. And actually, it was funny, you know, like she didn't understand what I was doing because I was unemployed. Technically, I was looking yeah. for a job. And the other um, uh, parents who were bringing their kids to her were, you know, the women doing the dishes in a Vietnamese restaurant, you know, people with very low profile. And I was coming with this huge car, you know, and she could really see that I was well off. So for her, it was very ununderstandable why I would give yeah. my kids to be taken care of during the day. And she slowly got to understand that actually I loved working. I loved working, uh, you know, as, as, as working in business and not working as a mother. And um, so it, it, it really interesting how we, we build the trust and the understanding um, during those years when she was supporting me with the care of my, my little one. Wow. Okay. Well, you have the same actual expression in, in Danish, the like the daycare mom. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay. So you found this. And so your youngest one was nine months. Mm. And what happened then? What happened after you've been doing this private equity digital yeah. strategy? Well, so somehow things were, were working kind of okay. And then, you know, tornadoes come in life. So one tornado came, um, um, for many personal reasons, my, my ex-husband went through a, a very difficult time and our marriage exploded. And um, so I stayed the third year in Erlangen trying to make things work. And um, I got a phone call from Zalando in, in April, May, April, May, and, and maybe late April. And I already had planned to move back to Amsterdam um, with my four kids as I was separating from my ex-husband. And I said to them, you know, this is impossible. I, you know, everything is planned. I had like begged to get um, four places at the British call back in Amsterdam. I had my apartment back and I was basically on the move. So I said, no, this is not possible. And then the woman who was doing um, the internal recruitment, bless her, uh, she insisted. So I, um, a few weeks later in May, I had a phone call with the, one of the founder of um, uh, Zanondo, Robert Gens. The company was already $2 billion. So we had yeah, it was a massive company, right? Because for any international listeners, can you just explain what Zalando is? I know what Zalando is, but a lot yeah, of people Zalando are not sure. Zalando was the first company to really crack fashion online. Um, yeah. And basically what they did is they offered free shipping, free return. And you have to know that in Germany, people pay Aufrechnung, uh, which means they pay on invoice. So they receive the merchandise and they pay only what they keep. So it was really a way of creating the changing room in your living room. And they really cracked that. Uh, they also cracked um, marketing in the way that it's been done in the last 10 years, meaning uh, understanding the customer acquisition cost versus the customer lifetime value and being able actually to understand how much you're going to earn long time uh, with your customers and invest. So they were basically massively investing in marketing, which was very new. So they cracked those two things, you know, the, the um, user experience or customer journey and the marketing aspect and invested massively and grew a company in, in I, I think it was like four years old when I joined, uh, something like this. And it was already 2 billion. So I discussed with, with Robert and, um, and I remember it was at 7 p.m. So at 8 p.m. I, I go to the dinner table and I say to my kids, you know, I might have a job in Berlin just to test the waters. And then my oldest son said, yeah, if we don't move to Amsterdam and we move to Berlin, I will commit suicide. And my wow. second said, oh, don't worry, ma'am, I'll go to an orphanage. And I was just like, okay, this is really too challenging because I still have a lot of friends in Amsterdam. So, so they so wanted I, to go back. They did not want to go to Berlin. Something they knew. And I, I emailed Robert and say, you know, you should have told to me six months ago, this is too stretched, too difficult. My life is upside down. I cannot do this. And then again, the recruiter insisted and say, why don't you come to Berlin? You know, just talk to the founder. 
And you know, who says no to me, the founder of a 2 billion company? Uh, so of course I went to Berlin. I spent four hours with uh, the two founders, the women who was leading people and, and another person who was leading the markets organization, which I took over. And it was the 3rd of June. I spent four hours and then I went back to the airport and I thought to myself, oh, this is a huge opportunity. I have to take it. I have to take it, you know, like, and it was really a hard decision. So I called my mom and said, mom, I see this. I think I should take it. What do you think? And this is where, honestly, having supporters in your life is so important. You know, having this advisor group, whether it's your parents or it's friends or it's brothers and sisters, whoever who knows you well and who can, you know, decipher what you want, but also what is realistic. And she told me, you know, whenever you want something, you make it happen. So you really want this, you'll make it happen. And honestly, I still have goosebumps thinking about it because I decided to go there. I moved four kids on my own. Um, I called the movers and say, hey, guys, we're not going to Amsterdam in three weeks. We're going to Berlin. Um, maybe you want to plan a storage because I don't have an apartment. <laughs> and for the next three weeks, I worked everything, you know, tax, social security, um, health insurance, you know, like finding an apartment, uh, finding a kita, finding activities for the kids all on my own. It was a complete nightmare, but so worth it. So worth it. So once more, you know, sometimes opportunity comes. So sometimes you slow down and it's okay. Sometimes you have to accelerate, but don't miss the train when he's leaving the station because it was such a blessing. It was such a blessing for me, you know, especially in this down moment where my marriage was going down the drain, having an opportunity to step up, you know, put my kids safely uh, financially teach myself so much more, work with really super bright people, learn, develop myself, you know, put a stamp, you know, like uh, taking my ground. It was such a blessing. So it was challenging. Uh, you know, for four years, I've been only raising my kids and working. I had very limited social life. Um, blessed are the women that I met here who really took care of me, came to have lunch with me. So I had, would have a social life. It's been really, you know, it takes a village to raise kids, but they've been really there for me. It's been, uh, it's been a blast, but it was really, really challenging. But, you know, sometimes you really need to push this accelerator and um, get your career where it needs to be. And sometimes you need to slow down and it's really okay. Both are okay. You know, as long as you know your needs at that moment. And that need at that moment was to recover a sense of myself and my value and to put my family safe financially. And it was really, really good to have a chance to do that. Yeah. So it sounds like in the middle of that divorce, you know, the, the, if we talk inner power, you know, that wasn't as strong and that the Salandra opportunity. And I mean, I just got teary when you talked about how your mom was just all in on your behalf and was just like, you'll make it work. I mean, it's funny. You said, you've got to think of what's realistic. A lot of people would say, it's not realistic to go to a city where you don't have any family, you don't have any network, you don't know anyone and you have four kids, you know, three to 13. How are you going to make that work on a top job that's going to be very demanding? What did you tell yourself in that period? Like what? I mean, I'm thinking mindset is such a huge piece. What did you tell yourself that helped you in the moments where maybe it wasn't obvious how it was going to come together? Yeah, I, I feel that for me, it's really this idea that stars are aligned, you know. Um, so I'm a Christian. And for me, you know, I really feel that they, there is this providence, like, you know, things are orchestrated in a way that is making sense. And uh, we don't have the grand scheme of things. But, you know, sometimes we get a glimpse that things are very harmonious and they come together. So for me, this idea that stars were aligned and things were coming in place and it made sense. Um, it felt like, yeah, uh, it was interesting. Like for instance, I had only for a month and a half, I had only three places at school. So either um, it was the three oldest and then my, my son didn't have a place in the Kita. Then he got a place in the Kita, but my oldest didn't have a place because um, some kid had to repeat and suddenly he became the waiting list. And then of course the waiting list, you know, emptied and he could cut in. And then my daughter didn't have a space because they thought she would go into a different group age because uh, she had in the change of school kind of moved back in, into a, a younger group. And then Ray realized, of course, that age group was full, but then it emptied, you know. So for those yeah six weeks, I didn't know whether all the kids would be able to go to the same school, which was quite important for my organization. And I thought, OK, well, it's going to it's going to work out, you know, providentially, it's going to work out. I shouldn't worry. You know, it's. It's just need to be patient. 
that faith sounds like it stood you in good stead that you know like you're saying stars aligned and it's going to work out like I do think that faith is such a superpower to be able to do things that other people go this is crazy this is risky how are you going to make it work so that's an incredibly powerful place that you find in yourself to to go to that place and for people who do not believe I think you have it in your guts you know sometimes when you're talking about a big risk you can have this gut you know feeling that it's exciting or this gut feeling that is dangerous and listening to your inner talk is going to be very helpful to guide you so yeah. I think, I mean, your circle of advisor, you know, not people who might be jealous or people, you know, who thinks that it's great because it's a big job. You know, you have people who actually project themselves in you and they would love to have this opportunity. So they're going to say, here, go for it, because somehow the world thinks it's great, but it might not be great for you. And I had many opportunities where people said, yeah, I should take that job. It's such an exposure you know, but do I really want to have this front scene role? Maybe not, you know, maybe it's not right for me. So um, this group of advisor, whoever they are, you know, like, um, I like Oprah Winfrey is using this as saying, you know, it's like your, um, it's like a, a president having this minister, you know, this, yes. this group of ministers who are your very strong advisor, they know their area. So maybe it's someone who knows you very well from a, a physical point of view, like your personal trainer or someone you exercise with, or someone who knows you spiritually or someone who knows your passion, but knows your character really well and is able to give this external advice and help you reflect, I think is extremely helpful in this kind of situations. So incredibly powerful. I always talk to my clients about building their team and who's on their team and who do they, you know, who are they choosing to be on their team? Definitely. And I have to ask, what happened with the kids? I mean, <laughs> they, they gave some pretty full on threats. What happened when they got to Berlin? Yeah. So actually, uh, uh, after a few months, they realized, oh, my God, it's so nice to be in a big city. And especially Berlin is is a quite a magical city because it's really big and you've got a lot of opportunities. But at the same time, every kids, every um, neighborhood is a village and there is a lot of safety. So you can be very independent. So, I mean, they loved it, you know, you know, after school, going to the lake and just saying, mom, I'm going to the lake, having a picnic. I'll be back at eight is a freedom and an excitement they didn't have in the countryside where everything needed to be done by car. You know, so uh, for them, it's been really amazing. I actually did an interview of my kids back in those days um, for a female empowerment exercise and asked them, you know, what is it to have a working mom? And we did that with several women. And it was really interesting, you know, how they handled it. You know, they said, yeah, maybe I see my mom less, but when I see her, I'm really excited about it. You know, so I think this idea of quality time is really working out full. You need to balance out, of course, um, you know, and, and kids might have different needs. I think with younger kids, you can easily decide when quality time is happening. So even if you come back from a business trip, it's not great, but you can wake up your kids and just have an hour and, you know, it, they will still, still, still sleep well. When they're older, it might be more challenging because sometimes I would go home really early and thinking, yeah, this Friday I'll go home at two and work from home, you know, and have more time with the kids. And suddenly I go home and I've got all the teenagers closing their doors and being, you know, on their phone with their friends and they don't want to talk to me. And I'm just like, why on earth did I come home early? It's really useless, you know? So it, it's a bit different um, depending on the age, but uh, but it works out. Yeah. I, I want to go back to the piece about putting the kids in a taxi just because I had never heard of anyone doing that. And it's very entrepreneurial, I think, always to invent ways that are different. Had you seen anyone do that? How did you even come up with figuring that out? I wonder how you figured out all the things you needed to figure out to make it work. Yeah, so I think the most important, and I've learned that really um, quite in early because um, my kids were going to Montessori and uh, at the Montessori school, they are taught to really do things on their own. And I remember um, one of the trainer there said, you know, if you want your kid to set up the table, you need to allow them to set up the table, which means they might break a glass and then it will, and at school we have only glass made of glass because then they learn that it can break instead of plastic glass, you can, you know, and you need to have a drawer where your kids can have what they need to set up the table at their eighth. So make sure that actually you make it possible for your kids to be independent. And that was very interesting for me because then I thought, okay, what would I like them to do? And what would I would like to do myself? Because, you know, maybe I prefer to do it my way, you know, um, and, you know, if you delegate is not done the same, especially if it's kids. So, but you, you start thinking, where do I want them to help? 
And, um, and then you think about yourself, you know, where do I want support and what do I love doing myself? And maybe with a very young baby, it's nice to give the bath because it's so special as a moment. But with a five years old, it's not so much fun because it's a lot of splashing and it's a lot of battle. <laughs> and then maybe I want to delegate that. So what you love at a certain moment in time, maybe you don't love it anymore. And um, since, you know, you and me, we've got 24 hours a day, we should focus on what we're good at and what we love doing. And then life is so much more fun. So for me, for instance, I don't really like cooking. You know, I can do it decently well because I've got a brain. So I use my brain and I try to follow and I'm good at doing benchmarks. So I find out the easy recipes and everything. But fundamentally, I'm not a great cook. You know, I don't have passion for it. So I had a babysitter who was a cook. And then the older my kids were getting, the more we selected uh, the babysitter based on the cooking skills and <laughs> babysitting skills. You know? and, and I would get my kids to interview. And the only thing they ask is that, what are your favorite recipes? And I came home, you know, from all that time when I was working really hard at Salando and the dinner was made, it was absolutely delicious. And we would have a very nice time eating something very nice because as French people, we really value gastronomy and we value social time around the table. So I would have a moment, I would arrive home smelling, you know, you were smelling good. And you've got this moment, you're coming home, kids are running in the corridor and you know, you're going to have this very unwinding moment of eating nice food. So I love nice food. I know what my needs are. I know I don't really like cooking. So if I come home and I have to cook, which I don't really like, it's not going to make me very re relaxed with my kids. So I delegated the cooking. Maybe it makes you feel guilty because um, somehow, you know, mothers tend to be nurturers. When my kids were little, I loved preparing this little puree and I was freezing them. So it was a time where I liked cooking, but I don't like it today. So really ask yourself what you like and then find out to delegate it. Yes, I heard you say somewhere, um, what, what was something like anything under a certain amount, you just delegate. Oh, yes, of course, because then comes the money. Yeah. Feeling guilty paying someone to do the work that you think you should be doing. And here we come into a patriarchal element. Uh -huh. Unfortunately, we are in a society that's been um, very patriarchal and a lot of work which is done has been done for free for years. So it's expected that you fold your laundry and most likely who is folding the laundry tends to be the women. It may be not in every couple, but most of the time taking the kids at school, um, cooking, shopping, all those kind of things. And it's very interesting. I see right now uh, the development of quick shopping, you know, those gorillas, Flink and others. Young people do not have a problem paying extra money, 10 euros, to get the shopping delivered because it considers it's work. So they pay for this work. But in my generation, which is because I'm 50, which is a bit more patriarchal, and we're trying to, you know, I'm still, you know, de deconstructing, I feel guilty because I think, hey, you can take your feet and go shopping because it's part of what I feel ingrained that I have to do. So you have to ask yourself, do I have to do it? And most likely you will come to not necessarily. Maybe if I enjoy it, I do it. If I enjoy shopping and going to the market on a Saturday, great. But do I like going to my little grocery store just to buy meal? Maybe not. And then do I pay for it? And then if you get into it, do I pay for it? Just think very basically. If I pay for it less than what I earn during that time, then it's okay. So set the bar. For me, for a very long time, we're 30 euros an hour. If it's less than 30 euros an hour, I make more than 30 euros an hour, it's worth delegating. Today, I'm trying to push it a bit higher and say, you know, and, and it's still a struggle. You know, I was just telling you, I bought a new computer and this is why it was difficult to put my, my um, earbuds today. But um, a new computer is going to go faster. I should buy a new computer because it's going to save me time. And I should not feel guilty in spending on a new computer. Anyway, I took it secondhand at Reefer because I worked in this company doing secondhand <laughs> products. So I don't feel so guilty. But it's um, it's interesting to invest in yourself. And really, again, we've got 24 hours. It's same for everyone. So you have to be mindful on when you spend your 24 hours. And if you're doing things that actually you could, should be delegating and you don't enjoy it, then honestly, you're not using your 24 hours wisely. And that's a waste for the rest of the world. It's not a waste only for you. It's a waste of your talent for the world. And that's not right. Especially as women, we need to shine, take our position, because if everyone in the world is using their talent, the world will be a better place. So whenever you're doing shopping or cooking or whatever you don't like, I mean, those things are the ones I don't like, maybe you enjoy it, then you're wasting 
you're wasting your talent. You're wasting the beautiful and unique person you are. We could end here. I mean, I have more questions, but I think that is such an important message. And so many, not every woman wants to lead in a big way, but some do. And one of the things that hold them back is like, I just don't have enough time. So I love, love this message. And for anyone who knows this message was for you, you know, pause and rewind a little bit and listen to it again. So you really sink it in because I think for many of us, we need to hear this more than once, the importance of this piece of delegating things that could easily be done by others that are not your favorite things so that you can be freed up to do things that are much more your purpose, your passion and what you're here, here to do. Definitely. And I would add on this, you know, it's not a question on only big jobs. You know, unfortunately, the role models that we have on stage are usually the women who are at the top in very, very big companies or very, very big roles. And for me, empowerment is for everyone. You know, you might be I don't know, in a beauty salon and you can be the best beauty salon person and do fabulous makeup and really make people's life fantastic. Um, you can be a massage person. You can be um, a pet sitter, whatever you're doing. You can do it very well if your mind is emptied from all this clutter that you have. So it's not, it's for everyone to reveal their full potential and revealing your full potential is not only for the top managers. Of course, there is a lot of people who do not dare to be a leader. And you need also to ask yourself, why don't I want to be a leader? What is preventing me from taking the big role? And it might be, you know, what you've been taught, you know, girls to be needs to be nice instead of, you know, girls need to take their full space. So there is this issue of jumping from usually middle management to top management where a lot of women are not feeling entitled. Um, there is this imposter syndrome, which is linked really to this idea that, you know, it might not be your space. So you need to question the reasons behind uh, what is the, the the underlying statement or the underlying lies that you might have in your mind that preventing you from taking a big role. But if it's your talent, go for it. But it doesn't mean that only this, this idea of using your 24 hours applies for everyone, regardless of what the society says, how big your role is. Love that. And totally agree. Um, we're coming to the end of our time together, even though I could definitely record another hour with you easily. Um, I know after Salando, then you've been on boards, you're clearly on lots of boards. Um, and also, among other things, running the Rising Pineapple um, Women's Conference Initiative. I'm not sure how you, you name it. So as a, a final piece, I would love you to share. I know you do the Rising Pineapple Conference, which is all about women empowerment. And I would love you to share um, briefly. I'm sure it's a, a, at least a full hour to talk about the big fat lies. But maybe you can give us briefly the, the three big fat lies that you shared at the last conference. Yeah, so I think for me, you know, the most important thing is that um, we really um, follow what is the truth and not get influenced by by what is around us. And uh, we've talked a bit about this, but the first big fact lie is that careers needs to be linear. And I don't really believe that careers needs to be linear. Sometimes you need to accelerate. Sometimes you need to slow down. And it's totally okay both. You really need to consider for yourself, what is the right speed of my career right now? I think the the second big one is that um, people think that you need to give it all to your job. And actually, that's not true. I think um, you need to be wise on how you spend your 24 hours. Um, you need to find out how to drop your mental load and also cross-fertilizing your experiences. We talked a bit about this, you know, around using your passion as a job, but find out the ways where you can make your self-development strong without necessarily giving all your life to your work. And I think the third one, and we touched upon it, is... Um, if you do your job well, you will be recognized. And that's not true. And we talked about the importance of having this college of ministry and, and having people around you to support you. But I think being visible, having supporters to, to promote you in the right moment, you know, not that you need to tweak things, but you need to be there. And, and, and I think this is the moment where you can shine is when you have this uh, strong support and, and people around you who will advocate for you in the right moment. So Indeed, we could we could speak way longer, but I think we've illustrated a bit those three key points, which yeah. I think are very important to reflect upon. So, you know, what's your speed? How do I use my 24 hours? And am I building my network around me? Maybe those could be some question where you could now take 
you know, half an hour, uh, write down some things and maybe come back to it in, in a week or two to, to see, you know, what do you want to change in your life? You know, what are the little tweaks that you want to, you know, step by step, you know, the journey is, is only a step at a time and think, okay, in the next months or in the next six months, what do I want to adjust in my life? Will I delegate some tasks that I don't like? Would I really think more uh, wisely about taking an hour with a friend of mine and reflecting on my life choices? You know, do I want to accelerate here or maybe decide to go um, to work only four days a week? You know, like what are the questions I want to ask me? I think that would be, I think, very helpful to get you to the next level of shining your true self and your uniqueness. Beautiful. And I mean, I'm feeling a part two coming out. Maybe, maybe you'll come back in the, in the future and we can talk about women on boards and building that network and how to get that visibility. And for now, if people want to connect with you, if, if they're curious about what you're up to or rising pineapples, where should they come find you? So you can find me on LinkedIn, but I'm also having an Instagram, uh, Delphine underscore Mousseau. I try to put here, you know, my haha moments, the nuggets of my um, learnings here and there. I've not been very active lately, but there is a lot of um, archives that you can browse through. And uh, I put in quite some effort in there to, you know, phrase my learnings and uh, my realization. So hopefully uh, you'll find some inspiration in there. Beautiful. Thank you so much for such a rich conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Have a blessed day. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. And I would love it if you would rate and review the show as it really does help other women to find it more easily. Remember, no matter what's going on around you, it only takes a single breath to start grounding back into your power. So let's take a breath. Feel your power and go spread the magic. <laughs>